Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, I hope you're well. Welcome to episode 66 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. This week we're going to be dealing with quite a distressing subject, uh, a particularly distressing investigation. So there's a bit of a health warning there for anybody who's um, likely to be disturbed by material involving description of uh, murder and uh, particularly suffering involved in this particular offence, which was significant. So before I introduce uh, this week's guest, I'm just going to read a short passage from Wikipedia about the victim of this particular murder, Banaz Mahmud. Banaz was born on the 16th of December 1985 and she died on the 24th of January 2006. She was a 20-year-old Iraqi Kurdish woman who lived in Mitcham in South London and she was murdered on the orders of her family in a so-called honour killing because she ended a violent and abusive forced marriage and started a relationship with someone of her own choosing. Her father, her uncle and her three cousins were later convicted of her murder. And in this week's podcast, I'm going to interview the person who investigated that murder and successfully brought about that conviction ex-DCI, I believe she was actually superintendent when she retired, um, but at the time I think she was a DCI, Caroline Good. Caroline, super experienced investigator, really uh, fantastic detective, and a thoroughly, thoroughly wonderful human being uh, into the bargain. I really, really enjoyed chatting to Caroline. We had... um, it was a real mixture of light and dark, I think, as you'll find in this uh, in this interview. Lots of um, you know fun and, and laughter and uh, storytelling, um, combined with some really very quite dark and serious subject matter. I really hope you find it interesting, and uh, more importantly, for those who are still serving or thinking about joining the police, or who are currently working in a role uh, that may involve exposure to these types of incidents. I hope you find it educational as well.
Hi, Caroline. Hi, how are you? Yeah, look at you, Bob, on at seven o'clock, right on the dot. <laughs> Did you literally wait? Did you literally wait to like one second after seven? No, I, I was like ready just a little bit before, but then <laughs> I, when I when I tried to join the meeting, it said I needed to update my uh, <laughs> update the Zoom app. So I was oh, like, oh no, God. I'm gonna be late. Yeah. Oh God! Yeah, no, brilliant. You well, know, I'm okay. sitting up, up on my bed upstairs oh, really? at the oh, moment God. because um, uh, I was like, I tried it in the small sitting room downstairs, and the dogs just want to come in and be with you and click around on the wooden floor and yeah, yeah, be all yeah. over you, you know. And I then know. open the door so you can hear my husband's like got the television on in the other room. <laughs> right, I'll go and yeah. hide upstairs. Yeah, and well, then the I've... fireworks started outside and the trains oh. were going by. <laughs> oh, There's nothing that's truly quiet. I know that's the thing, isn't it? Well, I've had to I've had to manage uh, all sorts of challenges, not just in terms of my own sort of try to find somewhere quiet for me but also some guests come on sometimes and they um you just think god have you given any thought to this whatsoever in terms of the quietness element so i think the person and i won't i won't i'm sure you won't mind me slagging him off because if he hears me saying this mick neville do you know do you know mike neville i, do know. I used to work with mick neville at stratum <laughs> he took he he gets the prize for like the the shittest place to be interviewed on the podcast because he was actually sat in the breakfast room of a hotel. Oh so my was, god! I know. But so Mick was, wouldn't. Mick wouldn't care about any any election. I know. Because, like, I, know, <laughs> I, know. I, know. I had to say to him. I said, "Mick, are you in the? Are you in a restaurant or something?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm in the hotel. I'm in the hotel oh, bre- breakfast room." I was like. I thought, oh God, well, you know, let's just battle up. We'll battle on, shall we? And it was in the end, it was fine, you know. But um, but we listen, worked um, together in the shittiest place in in, in in Lambeth. There was like, I remember being there. One there was five critical incidents in one day. It was just a mental, mental place to work. <laughs> but we always also, as is often a way when you're in a really, really busy place, we had an absolute brilliant office full of I people. And we get to a certain point in the day, and Mick and I shared this little poxy is an old victorian building with a tiny tiny di's office with a pair of us two crammed in together you know, <laughs> well, just... i um i talk i tell this i tell this story in my book about um taking over from um from mike uh i, I did a brief spell about was it even 12 months as a uh, as a pbo um on Dorset Road, which was like two beat in Clapham, which was like the front line of the crack and heroin. Oh, dealing. I thought it was at Clapham. Yeah. Did you? Yes. Yeah. So you know yeah. Dorset Road, don't you? Yeah. And I took over from him and um, he was like absolutely feared there. I mean, he was like, he was the sheriff of two beat, you know. And, uh, but yeah, he was great. He was a fantastic copper. But um, yeah. so this week, um, I have the very great pleasure to have Caroline Good who's an ex, um, I'm going to tell you what you did, Caroline, because I'll let you say that, um, ex-Met officer. So um, apologies to those people who probably think I do far too much about the Met, but uh, as I'm an, an ex-Met officer, I uh, I can do what I like. It's my podcast, do what I like. So Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good evening, and thanks for inviting me to come on. No problem at all. So and I've got no a... problem with you uh, dealing with the Met all the time because clearly we are the superior force. <laughs> don't, you start, don't you start winding everyone up. Oh, fucking hell. Here we go. We're going to be getting, we're going to be getting even more fucking hate mail. I don't, yeah. get any, I don't get any hate mail, but uh, we'll be getting hate mail now, thanks to you. But uh, yeah, so just a brief kind of intro in terms of who you are and uh, your background and all that kind of stuff. 
Sure, yeah. Um, so I joined the Metropolitan Police in March 1981 uh, during the Brixton riots. Oh, My first day on duty, actually on duty, was Princess Diana's marriage to Prince Charles. Oh, shit. So, who, uh, so we, that... had, we had someone else on the other day who... who who um oh yeah no it's tom murray do you know tom murray oh no yeah of course i know tom murray yeah <laughs> he, <Great> salute. <laughs> he was talking about that as well actually sorry carry on carry on I interrupted you yeah Cause... no not at all so that you know it was a bit of a strange int- introduction to policing really that that been you know first day on duty but i was posted to carter street which doesn't exist anymore but it's in an area called woolworth in yeah, southeast yeah. london uh, which is very close to where I was born and bred. So I was really familiar with the area and, you know, a bit like Brer Rabbit. So you were, like a, you were like one of the rare people in the Metropolitan Police who actually came from London, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, and, and absolutely loved it. It was a fabulous place to work. Really very, very busy, very rough. Hmm. Um, but, I, but I absolutely loved it. And I, yeah. I worked on M District as it was there for for really the first fifteen years of of so my Car- service. Carter Street was that Mike? Mike was it? Mike Sierra. Mike Sierra. There we Mike go. Mike Sierra. Mike. Mike was Peckham. Ah, oh, there we go. Yeah. Um, all, almost as good as Carter Street, but not but not <laughs> quite as good. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again because it always amuses me. Is that when you lock somebody up, when you lock somebody up at Clapham or anywhere on L District, they'd go. Oh, don't take me to Carter Street, Governor. And, that is uh... exactly true. That is exactly <laughs> right. Because everyone thought that they were, you know, going to get the shoe in. It was a complete urban myth, wasn't it? To- totally, totally. I- I'm sure, you know, I'm sure everywhere everywhere was just as rough as every- everywhere else. But they really feared coming into Carter Street. And they say, like, oh, like, you know, take take me down a borough, Mrs. So, like, don't, don't, which is like Southwark, Nick. Which we were always yeah. like slightly snippy about because we didn't think they were quite as hard as us. But um, you know, nobody wanted to come into Carter Street. But it's funny it that thing, isn't it? About certain. Work. Do you think there's a definite snobbery, isn't there? About, oh God, yeah. About where you've worked, you know. And I always used to kind of slightly look down my nose. And I'll and apologies to Tom Murray because I interviewed him uh, earlier on this week, and um, and he he went to Alpha Delta Canon. Oh, um, monument Canon binder. Exactly. And I, I used to always really look down my nose at people who worked on eight area, the old eight area, because I used to think, oh fucking hell, seriously, you know what I mean? And um, but yeah, there is a bit of snobbery there, isn't it? But where you, particularly where you first get posted to, isn't there? Well, there, there definitely is. Is a kind of elitism, both between what nicks or what districts you've worked on. Everyone wants to think they've had it harder than everyone else, don't they? You know, oh, yeah. you know, they've had the best jobs and everyone else is slightly inferior to them. So whether it's from being like the area car driver on a relief um, that looks down on the van driver, that looks down on the person that hasn't had a driving course yet, to whether it's like, you know, the the toughest place that you've ever worked and everyone else is is a bit of a slacker. There's a definite, definite hierarchy. So what what was it propelled you to join the police in the first place? Um, boredom, really. Um, I, I messed up at school. I, I, I messed up badly, really. I, I just became disengaged somewhere in the secondary education and, you know, discovered beer and boys and all those things were much mm. more important than than, yeah. than getting my head down. I wasn't, wasn't thick. I just didn't apply myself. Mm. Uh, and I left school with a grand total of five O-levels. 
and mm. went out and did a couple of office jobs, which I absolutely hated. I was as mm. miserable as sin. Yeah. Uh, and my mum was going through the paper one day and she said, Yeah, darling, you want to do something a bit unusual? Why don't you join the police? And she was totally, totally joking. And I looked at the other, I thought, that, that is just right up my street. That is exactly what I want to do. And I never looked back. I absolutely found myself. You know, I was in my groove from day one at, at, at training school. I absolutely loved it. And it saved me. It really? saved me because I don't know what would have become of me if, if I hadn't joined that. Uh, and to it's an extent, I drifted out the upper end for 33 years later. And I'm kind of in the same space now because I've not found anything that I've loved as much as policing since I've left. I know. It really gets on your skin, doesn't it? You know, yeah. it is definitely a bit of a love hit relationship though as well you know i'm sure we can come on to talk about you know the jobs you did later on that you you know we loved and the jobs that you hated but you know fundamentally it is i think it's the best job in the world i absolutely wholeheartedly agree with you i don't think there's there's another job that's that's anything like it and of course not every you don't love every single day that you're in it no, you not. have some days or some weeks some months that are better than others but yeah. when i look back on that overall mm. i i am so grateful that i had that opportunity to do that i have absolutely loved most of my career yeah. um yeah. and i think you never you know you're never going to be rich in terms of money if if yeah. you join the police but you you become rich in other ways, you know, rich, rich in experience. You find out things mm. about yourself. You find out your strengths and your weaknesses. Yeah. You make friendships that last a lifetime and, and memories that make a lifetime. And you yeah. have that real re sense of reward from of doing something that, that's worthwhile and making oh, a difference to other def people. Definitely. I went to a um, – I got invited to go to um... – an ex senior officer's mess dinner that sounds so quaint when you just when you say that, don't you? It's like mess dinner. It's like oh my god! It was at a local um, golf club, which again, which is like creates that uh, sort of that sort of impression of I don't know, sort of middle class bourgeois, um, you know, semi elitism or something like that. But it was black tie, which I bloody hate black tie dudes. Absolutely, <laughs> I hate putting on all that gear. Um, but actually, it was good fun. And but there was there was there was people there who had retired who had retired from policing probably before I joined. You oh know? wow! Yeah. Um, and and I was probably you know no disrespect to anybody there, but I was probably the youngest there by by quite a few years, I think. Um, but the crack, as they'd say in Northern Ireland, was just fantastic. You know, because they all had stories to tell, and I mean, yeah. and the, you could see in their demeanour some of the old boys who whose eyes would be lighting up as they would tell you about chasing armed robbers back in the 1970s yeah yeah um, and they oh, were and you could see in their faces that they were still there you know they were reliving it yeah as if it was yesterday and then they were probably in their 80s a lot of them you know yeah and did they think that, that the jobs fucked today or uh, yeah completely or in yeah. their day <laughs> no, completely. Well, they they all agreed that the job was probably fucked in their day, but they think it's particularly <laughs> fucked now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Every generation thinks the same, don't they? <laughs> That's right. So anyway, um, Carter Street. What happened? Where did you go from there? Um. Well, I had I had a bit of a checkered career. It was it wasn't a smooth upward trajectory by by any stretch of the imagination. It was more like a 
game of snakes and ladders. Right. And um, well, I think you're I in always... good. You're in good company there. You know? <laughs> I always knew I wanted to join the CID. I was very keen to get in the department. It wasn't very easy for a woman to get in the department in those days at all. Mm. Um, and you know, I had to sort of battle my way even to get onto the crime squad because there could only be one woman on the crime squad in in those days. And was that and both... was that a fi- an official thing? Or they... No. No, it wasn't. But they wouldn't, um, you know, they wouldn't have an, a, another woman on there. There was only going to be one. Oh, Applications sure. came out. Me and my best mate both put in for it. And she was much prettier than oh, I God. was. Oh, <laughs> and it was known that the DS that was running the crime squad fancied fancied my mate mm. uh, and thought I was too gobby. So <laughs> I, I was on a loser. Um, but in those days, it was handwritten applications. Mm. The, the DCI that, that we worked for at the time had a very, very untidy office and somehow the other person's application went missing. Uh, mm. God knows how that happened. Ian. Oh, funny, God, that, funny that. They didn't, uh, didn't, I, I didn't have shredders, off. did they? Didn't have shredders <laughs> yeah. in those days, did they? <laughs> <laughs> Coffee waste bad away. I've got burnt somewhere. But, um, you know, I managed to find my way on there. Uh, and then when I had about five years service, I got pregnant. Right. And it just... It, it just was not accepted in, in those days. You know, it was a very hard-drinking, hard-working culture. Mm. Um, and were you, still, were you like, still at Carter Street at this time? I was still at Carter Street, mm. yeah. And, you know, you, when, when I joined, you were told by the superintendent that you had to be three times better than the bloke to be thought of as half as good. And, and another superintendent told me there, oh, you're, you're a complete waste of effing space. You know, we, you know, really? women don't last more than five years. You're only here to find a meal ticket. Um, and all these, you know, well, you know, welcoming type of speeches that you got oh, in back, back Mor- in those Mor- days. Morale boosting. Yeah. And I and it was devastating to, to find yourself pregnant because of course it plo- A, it proved this bloke right. And he was rubbing his hands when I when I broke the news to him. He said, Oh, I told you, you know, and we actually had a bit of a, a, a smile about it, but the fact is the regulations were in those days that women could only work till they were three months pregnant. And mm. then you had you had three months leave and then they cut you off without a penny. And I was right. a single parent, mm. oh, a single parent to be, and I just had, would have had no income stream or anything. And I didn't want to lose this. I loved my job. I didn't want to lose it at yeah. all. Uh, and I actually fought through the Federation and got the regulations changed. So I was the first woman ever to stay on till I was nine months pregnant. Really? Um, yeah, got, got the regulations changed and came back. But that was, it was so, so difficult. And a lot I'm of sure people that must actually, have been stressful for you. Oh, is it phenomenally stressful? I, I, I can't think now, looking back on that, how I, how I even coped with that. I mean, that says an awful lot about you, though, doesn't it? In terms of you clearly had some serious backbone. In, it was desperation. To Ian. Do it, that. It, yeah. yeah. It wasn't that I was a sort of out and out feminist in those days. I'm far more feminist now in my old age than, than I was in those days. But, mm. you know, it, it, I just wanted that job and, I, and it was desperation. I needed to put money, I needed the money to put a roof over the kid's head, you know. But, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, some people absolutely hated me for that. And it was very, very uncomfortable for work. You know, people th- thought that. You know, you were somehow you were having it all. I mean, if only they mm. could have swapped lives with me, you'd know they would have known just how how really really difficult that it was. Um, and I went on to have another couple of children after that. I was mm. all I was in a very very unpleasant unhappy relationship. 
Right. And, and I and do you mind me asking, was that the same father of the first? Yeah, uh, was, yeah, it okay. was. Yeah, so... it was. And I and I thought I could make that work if only I had this sort of optimism of of youth, mm. and I, I I'm still a little bit like that now today. I think if I really really try, you know, I'm not going to give up on this. I will make this work. And mm. and sadly, I couldn't, and I ended up as a single parent with, with three kids. And again, do you do... mind me asking, was this other was the father in, in the job as well? In the yeah, he job? was. Right. Yes, yes, he was, which made things particularly difficult right. as yeah. as well. Um, so I did a lot of in those days. There was no such thing as part time working or continuing your career um, in in mm. the sort of path that you wanted. I was shoved yeah. into every admin role right. going, um, all of which I hated doing. But I just really just endured those years more and than were anything you, else. Were you, st- were you a constable throughout that period? Yeah. Of time? Yes, were. I was. Yeah. Um, and then eventually the kids got a bit older. So uh, I I split up with. Um, my partner, I was far, mm. far better off on my own than mm. I was in that relationship. Mm. And I just staged a comeback gradually. Yeah. And took took the exam, you know, got got back in the in the department and um just so worked you, what, my way up from so there. Became a sergeant. Again, this is just interesting, just to sort of because it's you know, it's a human story that you're describing as much as a professional one, isn't it? So how how old were your kids when you became a sergeant? Um, they were about 10, 8 and 6, I would say. Bloody hell. Fair play to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were all still in, so certainly still all in junior school. And did, uh, you, have, did you have much sort of family support around you? Um, I had, I've, I've got phenomenal parents. They're, they're mm. really, really lovely. My mum was in remission from cancer at that particular time. Um, and she would come round when I was doing like an early turn and uh, mm. t- and take the kids to school. So having been really, really ill herself, she would still mm. bring herself round wow. and just take the kids to school in the morning. Mm. Um, and then I, ha- I had the kids with a childminder, so someone would pick them up from their three different schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or sometimes I try and work a split shift, come home, pick the kids up, take them around to someone else, oh, and go God. back to work, and, and so stuff stressful. like that. You know. But the thing yeah. is, that the funny thing is, I'm not. not I've, I've, you know, I've, I'm, I'm, what you're describing is like off the scale. I think in terms of the the amount of stress and effort that that must require to, you know, keep yourself at work and um, you know motivated and doing a good job as well as trying to be a mother to three children on your own. I mean, my God, I can't even imagine it. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, I can think of times in my previous police career when we were, I mean, we sort of, we sort of, my wife and I joke about it now. We say, you know, do you remember the time when we had two kids under three? Um, I had two children from my previous marriage that I was still having to ferry around the place and I'd have to go and pick up my my son from school and my daughter was at university but and then we had the dog so in the morning in the morning we'd have to take the dog to the bloody dog minder and then take the children to the um uh to nursery um and then get yourself to work i just drive up to birmingham then which is probably (laughs) 45 minute drive whatever i get myself on the train and by the time you get to work 
you feel like you've done a day's work before you even start your day. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and you, your brain is constantly churning over of, you know, what have you got to do at work, but what have you got to do at home as well? And um, mm. sometimes that feeling of guilt as well, that you're not doing either of those jobs mm. to the, you know, to the best of your ability, because you've always got mm. one eye on, on something else. That's and, right. And you know, uh, the worst, the worst thing, and I'm speaking for a lot of parents here, and this is not a comment about like saying that people who don't have children are bad people. I'm not saying that. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the worst thing is when you've got a manager who doesn't have kids. Yeah. It's a yeah. fucking nightmare because yeah. they, because they just don't get it. Do they? They don't get it. But, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely that. And I had a horrible um, woman manager at one point who was just a total, you know, unsympathetic, not just unsympathetic, but spiteful person. Mm. Um, but also I remember sort of an older male chief inspector who absolutely hated me and went out of his way to be as unpleasant as he possibly could and he mm. had children himself, but of course he also had a wife that looked after his children. Yeah, yeah. He he hadn't got to worry about any of that. He came to work and yeah. pranced around and made him, you know, thought thought mm. he was the dog's yeah. nuts. But yeah, yeah. at home, Mrs. was was doing all the work. And yeah, you know, know. it's, it's not the same. I was doing both of those it. things. They don't get it. Do I mean that's yeah. I'm not saying it. when I say that it's not it's not all people who don't have kids. That that was that's not the case. But there was certain people, certain yeah. people. Who We've all didn't, got, we all know those people who didn't have yeah. didn't have kids just and and if you said to them I'm really sorry I've got to leave today because um they've got a sports day or you've got a nativity play or um there's parents evening or something like that they'd look at you like that with pure hatred sometimes yeah and that's the only way you can describe it and I just think oh my god so I mean I know what I'm saying is a lot of people are going to be listening to this and they'll be nodding their heads. I'll be thinking, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. But equally, there's probably people listening to this and going, well, you know, the job comes first. But anyway, listen, we could talk that, about that. That happened, that happened to me the first week as a DS. And I was, you know, I was really nervous before I went, you know, the first sort of week on promotion and you sort of like that imposter syndrome is mm. hugely there as well, mm. sort of mm. staging this comeback from this period in the wilderness when I'd had these kids. And I knew that my new DCI had already rung my current DI to say what she like and, mm. and you know, mm. all, all that business. And it had come back to me for rightly or wrongly. And after a, it just so happened that first week there was something I needed to do. My mum had an appointment at the hospital because of the cancer, blah, blah, blah. And I asked if for this one day it would be all right if I came in slightly later. And this bloke fucked me uphill and down dale in front of my new DI about, mm. you know, the job coming first. And if you can't do the job, you you know, you shouldn't be here, blah, blah, blah. I was asking for one day's, you know, cover. Oh, no. oh, <laughs> the no. DI said to me oh, no. when I went outside. Oh, you could like, cheerfully, you could cheerfully murder people of that, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah. He, he said, like, anything you want in future, the, this is the DI. Just, just come to me and, and and we'll sort it out between us. And me and that DI were best friends for years and years and years afterwards. Yeah. And, uh, fortunately, fortunately for everyone, dickhead, there's always yeah, there's two great or three people in the yeah, know, good people out there. So anyway, moving on then. So you became mm. a D, you became a DS. 
And that's still, still at Carter Street, was it? No, it was uh, uh, Croydon and South Norwood. All right, as, okay. a, as a DS. Right. Um, and then in about 2000, I became a DI and went to Lambeth. Lamb back to, and that was to one of the best postings I ever had. I was still, even last weekend, I was drinking with Lambeth people. It was, right. you know, we're still where, friends uh, all these where, years where, later. Where were you based? Um, to start with, I was covering Streatham and Brixton, right? Which was a really, really lively posting. You know, there was it was just kicking off every and, single and you day. Were, uh, and you were, and you were, you were working with one of my other ex-podcast guest Mick, Mick Neville weren't you? I was working with Mick Neville and we laughed every day <laughs> uh, it, you know it was an incredibly busy place but we had a fabulous team and you know we all got on like like a blooming house on fire as tends to happen in really really busy nicks doesn't it you know yeah, when you're right. under kosh tends to yeah. be a good you know a good team a good atmosphere you all sort of worked hard and we we played very hard as well and then I set up the first ever dedicated rape investigation unit, which was based out of Clapham that we were talking about earlier. All right, okay, Union Grove. At Union Grove. And that was also a brilliant team. So I had the the rape team upstairs and mm. a drug squad downstairs in the same okay. same nick. So I take it that's pre-Sapphire days, was it? That was the beginning of Sapphire. That, that oh, okay. evolved into Sapphire. Right, okay. Um and then I had, at the same time, I had all of the, what's now called public protection bits. So I had all yeah. the CSU, Domestic I had all the missing and all persons, and I was running a major inquiry out of Gypsy Hill. Oh, uh, so I, I was I had just a bit of everything except Kennington. Oh, bloody hell. It was, a, it was an absolutely fabulous posting. And that three years I spent there is, you know, some of the best times in my career. I bet you didn't know whether you were coming or going half the time, though. It was great. It was it was absolutely great. And sometimes the more you do, the more you can take on. You, you, your skills just seem to stretch to go with it, you know. But yeah, yeah. I yeah. remember going on holiday that first year and laying on the beach, and and in my head I could still hear the sirens going yeah, no, and no, the yeah. phone ringing. You know, it was like <laughs> constant. It was, the phone was just constantly going day and night, but. I absolutely thrived on it. I loved it. I know. Really yeah, loved well, it. Well, I can remember. Uh, I mean, I I was a bit of a lit developer pr promotion wise because I I stayed I stayed like a PC and a DC until I had nearly fourteen years service. You know. Um, and yeah, I, same and, here. And then I kind of got the bit between my teeth and 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 uh, and decided to keep going. You know. Um, but I remember I remember you know doing jobs, particularly the the counterterrorism stuff. You know, in London back in the nineties where. If you if you could have been at work twenty four hours a day, you probably would have chosen to be, you know. And yeah, I, I know didn't that want to miss out on anything. Yeah. I know, I know that you, I know that you didn't. I know that that's not sustainable. And but it, there was there was funny because there was there was always a, there was a couple of DSs. Um, <laughs> uh, if it, I know he listens to this sometimes, Jim Jim A, we'll call him, shall we? And he is. <laughs> <laughs> he used to have a, it's be a bad story every time no every time he'd take annual leave a massive job would crack off you oh, know? God, that <laughs> happened he, to me as well and, yeah. and he would miss it he'd miss it and everybody would like take the piss it like <laughs> I mean, it's like the ira were like checking his diary to figure out when jim was going to be on holiday you know <laughs> But, uh, and everybody would he'd come back all bronzed oh, you know, lazy and, bastard and, yeah. and everybody would have earned like thousands yeah. and thousands of pounds in overtime 
<laughs> He's missed out. Yeah, uh, nice holiday, Jim. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, funny. <laughs> but um, so yeah, so you did Lambeth for as a as a DI, and because um, uh, I want to want to get on to is to, you know this really really fascinating fascinating story of uh, of your involvement in the in the Banners Mahmud murder investigation. So so let's fast for, forward to you becoming a chief inspector. Let, talk first of all, talk to me about your experience of trying to become a chief inspector because if you're anything like me it took me about four goes so did you uh, it did yeah it, it it took me at least four goes but ac actually i joined the, the homicide and serious crime command as a di and when i investigated the bananas mahmoud case i was still a di oh were you yeah yeah right. and then i took the um the chiefs after that but oh right. god yeah i had several bashes at that chief inspectors and it changed every year just when oh, you thought you've got your head round right this year i'm gonna crack it they would introduce some crazy uh, bloody like this year we're gonna we're gonna do plates plate spinning okay <laughs> you're gonna have you know next next oh, year you're gonna have to stand on your head for for at least 60 <laughs> seconds, you know, and then you're going to do a backflip, you know, they change the rules every year. Stand, stand on your head and whistle out your ass. <laughs> yeah. But they, they, um, they introduced psychometric tests one year, which I hate. I, I, I just don't know how people ever get through those bloody tests because I read every one of those questions and I think, yeah, but it depends, doesn't it? You know, mm. <laughs> I might do that one day. It depends what the circumstances are. I might do something else the next time. So I'm not very good oh, at that. I know. And, and the first time I went in to do the blooming presentation, I just, just got up and walked out. <laughs> I just thought, I'm like this. <laughs> I said, like, I won't waste your time anymore. I'll come back next year. I, I got know. up and walked I out. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I remember getting feedback from, I think, at my third go. Um, and... The, the guy who was, who was, who was he'd been my ex-boss and he called me back two or three days later from my face-to-face -face feedback. And um, you know when you're in an interview or a board and you look at their faces and they're just looking <laughs> like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> you know what I mean? They're looking, they're all staring at you. Not and a thinking, yeah. what the fuck are you talking about yeah. and and he and he he pinpointed that moment he said from that moment on he said and they used this expression which i think was brilliant he said from that moment on you were abseiling into the abyss <laughs> It's nice, nice to know you made an impression. <laughs> and I knew exactly what I meant because I thought I am just talking utter shit now you know what I mean <laughs> It's when you get that slight that closed eyes uh, <laughs> and that, that shake of the head in disbelief as they look back down at their question paper. I know, paper, I, know I know. Nah, not this year, not yet, not this uh, year, goody. Oh, off oh, you go. Dear. But I know a woman once who was so nervous. She said she had her legs crossed when she was being like, interviewed and she was jiggling her leg and her <laughs> shoe came off and went. Under the desk were these three male officers <laughs> who was interviewing her. And she said, I, I didn't have, you know, I didn't know what to do about it. But she said, I decided to go and try and get it back. So she went oh, on God. her hands and knees oh, oh, under God. the desk of these three men that, that are interviewing her, you know. Just oh, like... God. That's <laughs> it's just, just terrible, excruciating. Oh, I no. hate being boarded. Oh, I, I hate know. it. 
the thing is, I, I can sort of gone off a bit of a tangent, but it's a funny tangent. <laughs> when I, I remember, you know, when I became a chief inspector and, you know, eventually superintendent, I would, used to do quite a lot of interviewing. And some of them are just complete car crashes, aren't they? And and you, I mean, I'm on one or I'm more than more than one or two. I, I had to stop it almost in the middle of it and just go, listen, listen, I'm really sorry, but we need to just stop this now because, um, you know, this is becoming really quite awkward, actually. You know, and and you do really oh. feel for people, but it's a dreadful situation, isn't it? I mean, it some people it is, and it go to pieces, don't they? It shouldn't be about technique either. You know, it just no. shouldn't be about technique. And I hate being interviewed. So I'm always a really sympathetic interviewer. Yeah. Uh, and if I feel that, you know, that's actually like a really good person. And I can tell from other things that you've said in the interview that you're quite a decent person, but you've completely gone off the, the track. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll stop people and say, look, you've only got a certain amount of time. And you're. I want to go back and tell me more about that story. But I want to try and get these factors in and yeah. and try and get it out them, a different yeah. way. Just just yeah, because yeah. it it shouldn't be about you know learning the technique. And you no. you'll know that there are people that work their absolute nuts off. Yeah, that aren't very good at interviewing and haven't got the time to study. Yeah. And there are other people that do nothing but climb that career ladder that, that yeah. all they do is record every little bit of evidence they've got or study and get yeah. a little project to get them up, up the ladder right. um, who are nowhere near as good, old Bill, yeah, as, as the people that, that don't interview well. Far too many people like that, unfortunately. So anyway, back to uh, let's talk about Anas Mahmud. So um, you were the SI on that job. So let's assume, I mean, obviously um, – it became a, a television program uh, back in what year was it? Um, what year? Uh, the, it, the first documentary was in 2012. Right. Okay. And that was ITV. Wasn't it called Honor? Was that it, or was that the drama? No. the The drama was called Honor, and that was, I think, came out maybe the in 2020 or 2021. Okay. And Keely, um, Keely. 2020, I think. Yeah. And Keely Hawes played you, didn't you? Didn't she? <laughs> yeah, she, she did. <laughs> uh, unfortunately for Keely, she's not quite as good looking as me, but they couldn't find anyone that was a, was a, a better match, really. That must have been so <laughs> weird having it's someone totally surreal. play you. Oh, my God. Totally, totally surreal. Uh, and to be honest with you, I hated it. It's not it's not me at all. She was lovely uh, I when, I, when I met her. I am not into celebs at all. Yeah. And when, when the... Um, when the scriptwriter rang up to say, "Oh, guess who we've got to play you in 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 the drama?" She said, oh, "Keely Hawes." I thought, "I've never heard of her. I've literally never." I said, "Oh, you know, is, is that a good thing?" Or you know, mm. I hadn't got a flipping clue. The kid, the kids filled me in pretty quickly. Right. And when I met her, she had really researched the murder and she really cared deeply about oh, wow. the, the, the role. Must have so been a very strange feeling. Yeah, but she was lovely. She and she, you know, she wasn't at all pretentious. Mm. Um, she, she was very, very nice indeed, and, and was quite nervous about getting the role right. So you, so you are, you and I, the second female SIO who I've interviewed on the podcast who had fictional TV characters. So, Jackie, oh yeah, Jackie, 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 yeah. Jackie Molson on, yeah, who was <laughs> Jane Tennyson. <laughs> and uh, and you are you are, you were Keely Horse was you so that's that's, that's brilliant. It was myself yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so anyway let's go back to the investigation so just sort of to set the scene um what were you 
so you were a D, were you still a DI at Clapham at that point? Uh, no, I was a DI on the Homicide and Serious Crime Command. Right. And um, by sheer good fortune, I found myself as acting DCI purely by default. Right. Not, not through merit or anything anything glorious, but purely by default. Uh, and one day I had a phone call from uh, one of the a DI at a local Nick at Merton that said he was worried about a missing person. Mm. And it was one that he just wanted to run past. He wasn't trying to lumber us with a job or anything mm. like that. He just said, yeah. oh, you know, two heads are better than one. Mm-hmm. And he told this story about um, a young Iraqi Kurdish woman who um, had left an arranged marriage, which had her husband had repeatedly physically and, and sexually abused her. We didn't know nearly in as much detail as this at the time. Um, but she'd left this marriage, come back to live with her family in South London, and then started a a relationship with another young man. Um, And she had reported to the police about the physical and sexual abuse, and that had brought her to to negative attention. Mm -hmm. But the fact that she then started this relationship with another young man was justification in her family's mind for having her killed, that she was perceived to have brought dishonour on the family. So it was the boyfriend that was reporting her missing. Right. This was a couple that used so to ring each a, other. This and the new, the new boyfriend. The yeah. new boyfriend, yeah. Mm. This was a couple that used to ring each other or text each other several times a day. It was the first mm. thing she would do. As she opened her eyes every morning, was send him a little text, good morning, you know, mm-hmm. my darling, I love you, you're the reason I'm alive, that, that type of thing. Yeah. And he knew when he couldn't get hold of her on the phone that something was seriously wrong. Yeah. And and just the, the day before, uh, there'd been an attempt to kidnap and murder the boyfriend, but he'd managed right. to get away from that. So he knew something was desperately wrong. Police had gone round, uniformed police had gone round to the address to spoke to mum and dad, and they said, our daughter is not missing. Um, we're very westernised, we're very progressive. Our daughters come and go as we please, yeah. as they please. Uh, and with that, the police had withdrawn, you know, not wanting to uh, to, to press the point and not wanting yeah. to be perceived as racist. Mm-hmm. But the boyfriend was insistent. He said, no, those girls are virtually held prisoner in, in that, that house. Um, and that's why the DI was ringing. Right. He said, you know, I don't really know where to go from yeah. here. And, and at this stage, how, when you were speaking to him, how long had she been missing for roughly? Um, that was on the 26th. She had been missing two days at that okay, point. Okay, so not not long, but long enough to not start long a long in the circumstances. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and the you know the bits and pieces that the locals had been able to to piece together. They'd trawled through a load of. They'd found some crime reports. One was a crime report from her um, back in December. So that she went missing. She was reported missing in January. Back in December, she she had gone to a local police station because her uncle had threatened to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, and what had happened is that, as so often happens in communities that are affected by honour-based violence, the women are, are policed, for want of a better word, yeah. <clears throat> policed very closely by the male relatives. She had been followed around by some young cousins. They mm-hmm. caught her kissing Ramat, the boyfriend, mm-hmm. and reported that back to the elders of the family. And they had held what I call a council of war at their house, uh, mm. which a decision was made by all the men of the extended family, not the women, of course, just the men, to say that um, both Banaz and Ramat would both be killed because they were bringing dishonour in the family. 
and the uncle had rung the mum. Excuse me, I'm going to take a swig of gin because my throat's no, no, dry. No, no, please do. Please do. <coughs> Here we go. Straight out of the bottle as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so a, the uncle rang the mum to say, in his words, that bitch and that bastard are going to die. Mm. And Bernaz had learned of this, and she'd come into um, the local police station to say, my uncle's threatened to kill me. I don't want you to do anything about it. I just want to make a record in case anything happens to me. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the sort of, that was really the second contact that she had had with police. Then on the 12th of December, she had left a letter naming some of the people that she had heard were going to be responsible for killing her. Okay. Uh, and sadly, you know, that hadn't found its way to the detective that was investigating the earlier matter. It hadn't been exhibited. It hadn't been passed on. <clears throat> it was just languishing in someone's correspondence tray. Yeah. Um, and then on New Year's Eve, there had been an attempt to murder Benaz by her own father. And he had lured her to her grandma's house on the pretext of sorting out her divorce from the husband, which, you know, nothing mm-hmm. did she want more. Mm-hmm. When he got, when she, they arrived at the house, he drove by a circuitous route, avoiding all the CCTV. And when they arrived at the house, he got her to hand over her mobile phone and switched it off. And he made her carry a suitcase into the house, which is, you know, particularly cynical because, in oh, all probability, God. it's the one that she ended up in. Um, and but then he he made her drink a bottle of brandy, and when she felt that she was sufficiently stupefied, he told her to look at the telly, don't turn around, don't look at what I'm doing. But she did turn around, and she caught Dad creeping up on her, wearing rubber gloves and, and trainers, and mm. she knew she was going to be strangled at that point. Oh, she just managed to escape from him and ran out the back of the house, uh, and she plunged her house through the her hands through the next door neighbor's window to try and get some help. And when that was unsuccessful, she staggered up, up off up the road and collapsed on the floor of a nearby cafe in a terrible state, telling the people in there, you know, call the police, call the police. My dad just tried to kill me. Um, ring my boyfriend. They'll kill my boyfriend too. Well, it was New Year's Eve, mm. Ian, and the police officers that turned up simply didn't believe what they were being told. They thought they were dealing with a New Year's Eve drunk yeah. Um, someone that was just making it up and treated her very, very harshly indeed. Mm. Um, you know, basically told her, you know, as we're told by the ambulance staff, effing shut up or I'll nick you for the criminal damage. Um, oh, as God. harsh as harshly as that. Really? So this is quite what there is to disbelieve. I still don't really understand. This is a young woman who um, and even even presumably the, the most cursory intelligence checks would have Oh would my have, god would have established that, that, yeah. that there was a backstory here, wasn't there? The family had come to notice eight times in the in the preceding two years, just to police alone. You know, there was um, obviously the, the thing about the physical and sexual ab- abuse. Mm. There was a, 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 a GBH on her, one of her older sisters by her brother a couple of years earlier. And when we were to look into that, Subsequently, during the murder investigation, it transpired that that was a failed honour killing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, there were the whole, one of the other sisters was being followed to and from school. There was the threats to kill. There was just so much. If mm-hmm. only she had bothered to to look on the system, it was all there. It would have yeah. told a story. And even if you didn't understand about honour based abuse, and very little was known about it in those days anyway, mm. this was a straightforward allegation of domestic violence. So yeah. I, I've got no time whatsoever um, mm. for for the way that Benaz was treated on that particular night. So mm. 
Um, this is all stuff, obviously, we pieced together afterwards. So when so, we took on the case, it was just a missing person, and we and we really didn't know much at all. So none of none of that sort of allegation that he tried to kill kill her then sort of got properly investigated. Is that was that the case? Did did it? You know, obviously, she got treated really badly by the initially responding yeah. officer. But was there ever a kind of it a didn't fault, get investigated fault? at all? No, nothing no. at all. Oh, Not God. at all. It, it got the crime book entry went on as a criminal damage to the next door neighbor's window. Oh, there was God. no allegation put on of the the attempt at, at all. Um, shocking, so that it? oh, it is it is heartbreakingly shocking. And a, a couple of days later, I mean, the, this poor Benaz was so terrified when she arrived at the hospital. They had to put a guard with her and to just to coax her out the back of the, the ambulance. She was so terrified that. Her dad would come to the hospital and find her and kill her. But a couple of days later, she discharged herself from the hospital and went to live with the boyfriend. And she told the nursing staff, you know, if I, if I run away, I'm dead. If I go home, I'm dead. It, it's my fate. She she knew really what was going to, to happen to her. Oh, um, and then on the day, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, there was an attempt on her boyfriend's life to kidnap the boyfriend. That was the 22nd of January. Mm-hmm. The following day, both Banaz and Ramat went into two similar, uh, two different police stations to report the latest matter. Only this time, Banaz said, I, I'm this time I'm going to make a statement. You know, I can't, mm-hmm. we can't put up with this anymore. Yeah. They're definitely going to kill us. Uh, and the police officer that dealt with her on that occasion tried everything she could to get her into a place of safety. But Benaz said, I'm going to go home tonight. I will be safe at home because my mum is there and my mum won't let anything happen to me. We know now, obviously we didn't know at the time, we know now that she was murdered the following morning at her home address. Mm-hmm. And the reason that she was murdered there and then was that she had confided in her mother or confided to her mother that she was going to come back to the police station and make a statement and the mum had told the men in the family and they've murdered her before she got the chance to come back oh, to prevent God. her from coming back and making that statement so sad isn't it oh it's it's an absolutely heartbreaking case you know that mm. will stay with me for my life you know without any shade of a doubt yeah. so so um going right back to when you started describing your involvement in this the the di that brought that missing person's Mm. inquiry to you um did you immediately start treating this as a suspicious high-risk misper yes we did um what what we did was to agree um on a course of action um and i set a number of, of actions i i wanted the um, all of the addresses searched thoroughly and, and you will know Ian how many times there have been cases where mm. um, people have been reported missing and the home addresses haven't been searched properly and then right. you know murder people have been found there subsequently so yeah. you know I'd had a, had a couple of brushes with that myself you know where, where mm. things hadn't gone right so it's something I was an absolute stickler for mm. so I wanted your mum and dad's address searched grandma's address search where the attempted murder had taken place uncle ari's house who was the one who had made the threat and the boyfriend uh, his house to be searched properly as well because he wouldn't be the first young man that's come in and reported his girlfriend missing when it's actually him that's yeah. um yeah. that's done the fell deed 
and for all of those people to be treated as significant witnesses to get them to to commit there wasn't enough to treat um, Uncle Larry and the father as suspects at that stage. We had this yeah. real confused, muddled yeah. set of information, various crime reports that came in, some of which were sort of self-contradictory. And um, we really didn't know what was what at mm. that stage. Mm. Um, and I said, you know, go, you know, if you can go away and do all of those things, um, let's meet again in 24 hours. If you yeah. haven't found her, I'll take it off your hands. And right. that's exactly what happened. And treat it as a murder investigation yeah. or a suspicion. Yeah. Mm. Well, we didn't know at that stage, you know, is, is this a missing person that I'm dealing with? Yeah. Is this a person that's being abducted and is held mm. against her will somewhere? Yeah. Or is has she, in fact, already been murdered? Mm. Well, we know from what, you know, the result of the searches, it didn't look as if she was she was she had left of her own volition. Um, there was, you know, most of her belongings were still at her home address. Her passport was still at her home address. There had been no movement on her phone. It had been used um, just to check the data at about midnight the night before on a on a mask that just could be reached from her home address. There was no movement on her bank account or, or you know, mm -hmm. anything like that. Um, so we didn't feel that she was missing of her own volition. And we also looked at the conversations, although her phone was missing, we had the boyfriend's phone. He he gave us his phone um, voluntarily. Um, and so we had conversations between her and the boyfriend that didn't show any sort of discord between those yeah. two. But what it yeah. did show was that that, con that relationship was being conducted very much against the will of mum yeah. and dad which showed that mum and dad were not being honest with us yeah. either. Mm -hmm. um, and also on Ramat's phone, there was a clip of film of Banaz that had been taken of her at the hospital on that night when her dad had tried to kill her, which right. is the most heartrending piece of footage that, that you could possibly look at of this poor young woman who is absolutely petrified, but she's also sort of her, her little mouth is dry where she's trying to, you know, she's dehydrated. Yeah. She's trying to yeah. tell this story. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Ramat saying, who did that? Who did that? Baba, daddy, you know, so it's very, very sad indeed, but it made us realize that, you know, Ramat was in fact being truthful yeah. and, and it was and the so parents I'm, that I'm were I'm being old, dishonest. I'm... How old was Banners at this at this time? Twenty. She 20. was twen twenty years old. Yeah. Very very young then, really. Yeah, in, indeed, and and quite in in many ways quite unworldly. Mm. Love lovely, you know her. Yeah. She was a lovely young woman. So so you're doing all the stuff that you would um, expect, um, you know, somebody like you and your team to do, um, and uh, and that is kind of effectively not identifying anything uh outrageous at this stage what what was this kind of first kind of breakthrough then i suppose in terms of saying okay was it was there was there a body find then or no um that's right the first the first sort of course of action was a very wide scale search and arrest operation so from the next day um we searched 12 addresses Imagine what that was like overnight, trying to cobble together enough <laughs> enough people mm. to do 12 addresses simultaneously, um, you know, trying to do all the sort of intel work behind that, but also the logistics and cobbling together enough people. I, I, I 
scrounge people from just about everywhere we could. So this is um, all just for those listening who maybe not come from a, from a police background then. So clearly you've had to go out and swear out warrants for all of those addresses uh, on a on 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 the on the basis that we believe that there's a there's a person who's either been either murdered or abducted and maybe being held against a will or whatever in order or to that we the, would find evidence that yeah. would lead us you know to understand what had happened to them Ex exactly that but also right. obviously to do the full research on all of those addresses and who yeah. might be there yeah. and, and also to try and identify the people you know even like Benaz told you had written that little letter mm -hmm. um a lot of the names were very very difficult to to decipher and to identify exactly who those people were Mm -hmm. um, so there's a huge amount of work that went on that first night, um, and we searched a number of addresses the next and day. And bearing in mind, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but um, bearing in mind this is still only um, so from from the minute from from when that DI walked into your office asking for some advice and support to you actually swearing out warrants for addresses. What sort of time scale are we talking about here? 36 hours, something like really? that. So, so that was pretty rapid, really, you know, because you well, can, ima you can imagine in some, in some places, I'm not, you know, bearing in mind that honour-based violence and killings were, was badly understood, I think, I think you did pretty well there, actually, because a lot of, I could imagine a lot of forces thinking, ah, this is just a missing person's inquiry. And this is the thing, isn't it? It's a bit of a, a bit of a postcode lottery policing in this country, isn't it? It depends on, on where these things happen, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it can come. It can come down to individuals, and it can come down to you know, uh, uh, as you say, geographically where, where it happens. Sometimes some of those things are influenced by budget. Mm. Sometimes some of those things are influenced by senior officers above you who have like a very small tolerance for for you taking on something that's not actually a murder. Mm, um, mm. I felt very strongly that we need to act and act quickly yeah, yeah. without, you know, positive information that she was dead. Yeah. We treated it as if she was still alive. Yeah. And it became a race against time to try and that's find a significant, this young woman. Re significant resourcing issue, isn't it? To, to, do all, to do all those addresses in that time scale, isn't it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Even if you think there's only like half, a, half a dozen people per address to, to scrape all those together. Mm. Uh, but uh, you know we had great collaboration a with the the local police station where Benaz had gone missing from uh, but all of the the addresses that we searched you know we had great cooperation mm. uh, it, it had some um, you know dog handlers mounted <laughs> mounted officers we we just scrounged people from wherever we could yeah, yeah. Um, and like from from the local CID but Sadly, we didn't find Benaz at any of those initial 12 addresses and we didn't arrest any of our, I think we had something like 12 suspects right from the outset. Hmm. And that just, you know, so just finish the, the first sentence before I say the next one. And we, we didn't really manage to arrest anybody other than the dad and the uncle in that initial first sweep. Um, from day one onwards, that number of suspects just mushroomed and it was really hard to put some parameters around it to think, mm -hmm. you know, who am I going to prioritise here? Yeah. Um, because the number of suspects just and addresses just kept growing and growing and growing. Mm. I think within the first two weeks, we had searched 47 addresses, the length and breadth of the country.
looking for either for this young woman or for evidence that was going to show us, you know, something that had happened to her, either Mm. a crime scene or or something else. And because I didn't really know what I was looking for, we took just about everything that that could have given us that information. So every phone, every car, um, every computer, you know, writing that couldn't be readily um, translated there and then at the address. we, We found some very strange things. We found like an altar in the basement of one address. Um, and we found sort of stuff that we thought was blood in vehicles. And we found a coffin propped up in the backyard of one, one of Uncle Ari's addresses and a bonfire going there. Just the week before we dealt with a case where a husband had murdered his wife and burnt her remains in the back garden. So we're thinking, crikey, is this another one of those? Sifting mm. through all of these ashes in in the in the back garden and of course all of those addresses had to be searched for forensically i was was just about to say i mean the the resources that this requires makes my head hurt thinking about it oh gosh it was really really i mean we had wonderful crime scene manager that sort of organized you know or coordinated the crime scene manager's response to that but you know, we've got finite resources, as mm. you're you're just you know pointing out. We've got to be so careful about the whole cross contamination thing. Mm. Um, we were absolutely, you know, as strict as strict could be to yeah. make sure that we. So there's didn't an, in- there's, mess an inter- up anything. there's an interesting point here for me as well around uh, so the time. So this is what 2006 was it? 2006, yeah. Okay, so pre-austerity. So can you imagine trying to do that in today's policing world? It would just be... I think even then, austerity was beginning to bite. Mm. But I think when you're in the um, Specialist Crime Command, Homicide and Serious Crime Command, we obviously had far more resources than the the locals would have had on Borough. Mm. Um, So even in those days, that, that... um, investigation of Benazi's murder cost, you know, well over a million pounds. Mm, mm. And when I've given sort of presentations about it in smaller forces, they said, "Well, we just couldn't, we just couldn't have afforded to do to do that." Mm. So, you know, what what's the answer to that? Yeah. So, I think one of the answers to that is to invest in training around on a based violence because mm. it's far cheaper to train your people than it is to try and mop it up. Yeah. up. After re- the, the event, you know. Because realistically, there was multiple opportunities to safeguard there were. before that, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah. yeah, there definitely were. There were at least five missed opportunities hmm. to, to save that, that young woman's life. Yeah. So what was the big sort of breakthrough then, so to speak? Um, the breakthrough really was uh, arresting a man called Mohammed Hammer. Now, he, he hadn't been in when we knocked on his door. But we left the message for, for him to come and come and hand himself in. And we seized some some evidence that was later found to be significant, some photos and stuff like that at his address and a vehicle. He was the man who had hired the vehicle that had been used in the attempt to kidnap Ramat. Right. And a couple of things happened. So while while he was in custody being questioned, a young man rang. Ramat and said, I swear on the Quran, brother, she is alive. I'll just try and, uh, you know, find out where she is for you. And Ramat was praying that his girlfriend was was stay, still alive, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought it was far more likely to be a ruse to try and lure Ramat into a meet and kill him. So mm-hmm. we were very, very careful, you know, not 
to sort of like use him as a task witness to mm. to meet this other person or whatever we we consider very carefully all the different things that that we could do um but at the same time there not only were the community not helping us there was a wide scale attempt to pervert the course of justice going on so we mm. were getting fed loads and loads of misleading information about right. where where Benaz might be or you know things that people coming in and saying oh she'd made up a lot of these stories we had false sightings of Benaz um we had people confessing to the murder that had then gone back to Iraq and so on and so forth so trying to sort the wheat from the chaff particularly when you don't know anything mm. about on a base violence yourself was mm. very very difficult yeah. however at the end of the day we had people out trying to find this young man who was ringing in saying that she was safe we couldn't find him and we ended up charging him on you know fairly slim evidence to be honest with you there was enough obviously for the cps to charge him but we charged him with banaz's murder mm. <clears throat> and that enabled us to 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 do a couple of things but it it was a very bold decision in one way because you can only keep someone in custody as set certain amount of time yeah. before it comes to trial. And I couldn't even prove at that point that Benaz was dead, much less mm. that this person had, had, had killed her. Mm -hmm. But it did allow uh, us to pursue some covert measures. Mm. Um, and that led to people talking to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and we heard people on covertly co uh, recorded conversations confessing to having killed someone that we thought was very likely to be Benaz. Mm. Very graphic description of, of strangling this, this young woman. Uh, absolutely horrendous description of, of very slowly strangling this young woman and putting her body in a suitcase and burying mm. that suitcase somewhere. But we had absolutely no idea where that right. somewhere was. So... Mm. We thought that it, it was good because it was a start of a ten. At least we we had the right people and we were on the on the right path. You know, mm -hmm. our, our hypothesis was correct. Mm -hmm. um, but this was something that was never going to be allowed to use in evidence. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, the next three months then were spent. And presumably, sorry to interrupt. Presumably, that was all just disclosed at the trial and all of the the covert stuff. It, much much later on it was, but we were told oh. at that stage we were never, ever going to be allowed to, to, to use any of that, ev evidentially. Mm. Um, so it's frust quite frustrating because you think, yeah, it's it's good um, that, you know, at least you know that you're on the right track and it might help us to find Benaz. But, mm. you know, will it help you to convict the people? Probably not. Mm. And the next three months we spent just trying to find this young woman's body. Um and we lived and breathed and slept trying to find her body, mm. um, particularly in the time scale before he was going to be released from, from prison. And we tried just about everything to, to no good result. Um, but, and they were describing, you know, various people that we were listening to were describing burying her body in a back garden. So we looked at the hire car that I mentioned to you earlier had a mm. tracker on it, unbeknownst to, to the people that had killed her. We looked at the, the telephone evidence and mm. all of the people that we suspected of being involved were um, around Benazi's home address on the morning of when we thought the murder had taken place. 
all except the, the one person that we had charged who had his phone off. Yeah. And then after the after the murder, they all disperse. Uncle goes off to his place of business in, in South London. And three of these other young Kurdish men had gone to Birmingham. Um, and then not on the day of the murder, but subsequently, the, the phones and the tracker on this one vehicle come backwards and forwards between Birmingham and London, like five or six times. And sometimes they'd only come to London for like three quarters of an hour, turn around and go back again. Mm -hmm. thought, well, what on earth am I looking at here? I you know, really just don't understand what, what this is about. Mm -hmm. But in those conversations, they mention that when they were dropping this suitcase into a, into a hole in the back garden in, in Birmingham, oh, sorry, we didn't know it was in Birmingham. They, they dropped it in this, this um, hole in a back garden somewhere. They had broken a water pipe and the water had leaked into the garden and they mentioned that they had tried to fix the pipe mm. and we thought maybe just maybe this is them to and fro in from london trying trying to find someone to go and pick you know fix this pipe so we started looking at an area in birmingham um called that's hansworth based, that's based, <laughs> based on telecoms was it in terms of the um oh, the phones and the tracker yeah, right, right. and and those conversations, and we we put the um, Westmid's helicopter up to try and find something that fitted the physical description of mm -hmm. of what they were talking about, um, and that was unsuccessful because the, the the description fitted about just about every you know address yeah. up there in Handsworth. Yeah, um, and then right at the last knockings, and it was like I'm talking about three or four days before there was an application to dismiss the case. It was right at the last knock-ins. We got some further information from those conversations. These two men are boasting about this murder. Um, and there was a young man from Birmingham who was talking, boasting about how stupid the police are. You know, big, big nose is never going to find them. Big nose is clearly me. <laughs> They're never going to find, you know, find the body. Um, and the guy that, that was the, one of the people responsible for killing her, Mohammed Hammer, said, did you put the freezer back on top of the body? And I knew that we had it in that footage from the West Mid's helicopter. Knew had right. seen it. There was a freezer uh, in the garden. Yeah, Matt, Matt as I you know, looked at one of the DSs and said, we've, you know, we've seen that. I've definitely seen a freezer in the, that, that footage from the helicopter. Hmm. Um, dug the tape out and sure enough, there it was. And it fitted every other description. So it was just so most just, euphoric moment. Um, so you've discovered, you so see, you've located this house that's got the freezer in the garden. Yeah. Um, um, presumably, there's an application for a warrant pretty sharp, which I'd imagine. Uh, yeah. Put, put a few people on a covert watch overnight on, on the address um, while, while somebody else went to apply for the warrant. Mm -hmm. um, and the next morning, we executed that warrant. Um, and it was done very, um, you know, it was a really, really totally surreal day, to be honest with you, to finally be in that back garden and recognise those physical signs that we had been looking for for the past three months. There was a, a window that was boarded up and you know, they had talked about the fact that the back garden wasn't overlooked and, and indeed it wasn't overlooked. And we're thinking, yeah, you know, this is this is. Um, this is definitely going to be it. We we worked with a forensic archaeologist called Barry Simpson, who was himself a retired detective superintendent who had worked on murder investigations. 
And again, we, we didn't, um, because of the, the sensitivity of it, we couldn't say to him how we had this information. Mm -hmm. We just said, you know, we've got reason to believe we think there's a, a body in this back garden. And this guy squatted down on his heels, Ian, looked across, looked at the, the soil in the back garden and went straight to the spot mm. where the, the body was buried. He, he talked about things like alluvial flumes, which is uh, where loose soil has been washed you know, across the, the patio. Yeah. We were nodding very sagely as if we understood yeah. what he was talking about. But yeah. um, so, so the scenario was that there, were, there was a patio outside the back door. And on top of that patio, there was piled bags and bags of household rubbish mm -hmm. and a load of old furniture mm. you know, that was completely, it was like a, a sort of mountain of stuff that was, that was placed on top of this patio, on top of the freezer. The mm. freezer was you know, part of that stuff that, that was on there, and which, which helped us to identify the spot. So you can imagine all of that had to be extracted under forensic conditions, oh, pieces of furniture and uh, um, whatever else, all of which, you know, we're looking at thinking this is a forensically rich environment. You know, there mm. must have, there was a slab of wood with chewing gum stuck on the underside. Mm. There was all these bags of rubbish that you think is going to have something in there that's going to help you. Yeah. And once all of that was removed, we came to the, to the actual deposition to, to the grave site that was sectioned off into um you know very small sections everything's photographed everything's filmed and these two archaeologists worked away with a tiny tiny little trowel taking out like a couple of inches of soil at a time and we very quickly ran out of containers we'd take a load of stuff up with us and we went out and bought all of the dust local dustbins from all the little hardware stores and we filled all of these dustbins uh, full of soil. And the idea was that they would go, you know, later be examined, sieved for, you know, things like cigarette butts and whatever else we might find in there. And the dig went on for hours and hours and hours. And it, it was tented off. It was because it wasn't in an overlooked place. Mm -hmm. We had the scene tented off anyway. Because we had something like either 10 to 12 people on bail. Mm at various places around the country, some of whom were under observation, under surveillance, and some of whom, whom weren't. But they were kind of sitting pretty. They were quite confident at this point that we were never going to find her. We'd already had two suspects that had fled to, to Iraq even before we were aware this young woman had died. Mm -hmm. And we knew that once the body, it was known that the body was had been found, we, we could lose other people very, very quickly. So we were mm -hmm. trying to keep it under wraps. Yeah. Um, then we get down a couple of feet and we uncover this piece of pipe, which mm -hmm. the other DI that was working on it is a guy called um, Rick Murphy. And I were like terribly, terribly excited when we saw this pipe because we think we know that what well, this is, this is the pipe that's been broken by these, by mm -hmm. these guys. And it's wrapped around with a piece of duct tape. And we said to the, to the archaeologist, you know, we please be like really careful how you handle that because we don't want the crime scene you know, full of water. And as mm. he touched it, it just exploded. Oh, God. And there was water absolutely everywhere. This water main water pipe had gone. Um, so this scene that we're trying to keep under wraps, we've now got the local fire fire brigade come <clears throat> and the water board. The water board come down to 
they closed off the the mains and like everyone in the street is queuing up at a standpipe with their kettles and oh, saucepans and, and whatever else. And we've got a big, big fire engine parked outside our crime scene with a huge pump pumping the water pump out of this oh, and, and pumping as if yeah. it's not as if it's not complicated enough. Oh my god! You know, you you absolutely couldn't make it up. But yeah, sometimes it's only so much that 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 you can do. But eventually, all of that was capped off, and the water was sucked out, and they carried on digging. And we're getting towards night. It's getting slightly dark. This is twenty seventh mm. of April, two thousand and six. And the guy says, "I can tell that." You know, there's been a grave has been dug here. I can see where the loose soil is compared to the compact soil. I can see where the roots have been dug through with with a shovel or whatever. But if ever she was here, she's not here now. Um, and we were like absolutely oh, devastated God. because oh, there had been talk about digging the body up and burning her, getting rid oh. of it, burning. You know, makes a make a bonfire with pallets and and get rid of her. And we thought we've missed her. We're just too late. Hmm. Um, and we said, like, just give us another half an hour. Um, you know, just we were under arc lights by by this point. Give give us another half an hour, and if if we haven't found her, we'll we'll sort of pack it in for the day, regroup in the morning, and make a decision about what 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 to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, and he carried on digging, and half an hour later, he turned up the suitcase that the body was in. Oh. Um, it was a very very compact hole that it was just bigger than the suitcase so they must have sort of dug a bit and then turned around and dug a bit more mm-hmm. um and and again what you know totally totally surreal moment we we thought we would be absolutely euphoric about finding her mm. um and of course we had this phenomenal relief that you know Either the relief of finding her because I really wanted to find this young woman's body and, and lay her to, to rest with a with a mm. you know the dignity that she deserved yeah. for that. But yeah. also that yeah, you know, professional pride in I doesn't want don't want to let these people get away with this horrendous crime. Mm-hmm. So there was there was relief, but not euphoria. It was yeah. just the circumstances you know, were just so sad and so yeah. sordid. Yeah. But yeah. you're having heard what those people had done to her and then they you know the further indignity of just pushing her body in into a suitcase and dropping her down a hole covering her up with rubbish was was too much to bear it was you know absolutely vile thing that they had done to her so we were very very grateful um that we we had found her Um, so just just to just to sort of uh, when you actually located the suitcase was there a pathologist there to sort of um, open the suitcase at the scene, or did you just take the suitcase no, away? We, we, we took it away. We we used um, the fire brigade to lift. We needed their lifting equipment to to mm. get the suitcase out of the hole, and we wanted to preserve the ground that was underneath the suitcase in case of footprints and stuff like that. There. Mm. Again, we told the fire brigade that you know we were really, really were trying to keep this under wraps. Um, the, fire, the the suitcase was extracted and taken straight to, to the mortuary at, at Birmingham. Hmm. Um, sadly, the next morning we discovered that one, somebody from the fire service had sold that story to the newspaper. Oh, um, so the vast majority of the team blue-lighted it literally back to London and we started scooping up all of the people that we, we had on bail and further arresting them because we now had new evidence. Hmm. 
and two of us stayed on in Birmingham to be present at the post-mortem. Hmm. <clears throat> and um, so had, I'm assuming had she just been put, I mean, it's probably a level of information that's probably unnecessary, but uh, had she just been put into the suitcase, uh, pushed into the suitcase, or had they dismembered her, or had, had, what had they done? She she wasn't she wasn't dismembered. Um, there there was talk, um, you know, on those those conversations around the fact that her hair was was her elbow was sticking out in in the suitcase, and her hair was sticking out through the zip, and both of those things were were absolutely accurate. Something that no one, the only people that would have known that were the people that dragged her body in in that suitcase. Mm-hmm. Um, so she 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 was in a what I'd call in a fetal position, right. curled up in 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 this suitcase. Hmm. Um, she was naked, other than a, a pair of knickers. Hmm. Again, exactly as they had described, because they had broken into this young woman's room when she was asleep um, in the morning before she she got up in the morning. Now, you can imagine the horror of those three people those three young men breaking into her bedroom and she must have known at that point, you know, that her time had come. Mm. And then it, it took them, they they actually described that it took them more than half an hour to, to, to kill her. It's a, they, they talk about uh, it took more than half an hour for, for the bitch to die, for the soul to leave her body. So oh, um, a very absolutely horrendous death. And, and, who, and who were they then, the three who actually did the the deed itself so the, the, those three men were mohammed hammer mohammed ali and omar hussein who who were cousins of banaz they were members of the family right okay and do we think that the the father or mother were kind of present at the time or were they they, they were they're obviously in cahoots but the the mother has never been convicted of anything so uh, i'll just be careful how, careful how i phrase that Mm. Um, neither of them were present at mm. the home address at the time that she was murdered. Mm. Although Dad has been convicted because he was the person that organised it and orchestrated mm. the whole the whole thing. One of Banaz's sisters was present in the home address while she was being murdered, uh, and we we knew that. Um, I mean, she had not given us absolutely anything when we were being interviewed. Us, she hadn't told us a thing. But we knew from those conversations that she she was um, upstairs while Benaz was being murdered because they say Beza was there. Ari lied to us, the bastard. He said the house would be empty, but Beza was there. Mm. Um, her, her account had been that she was at the address. She was upstairs bathing the baby and doing whatever. Um, but when she came downstairs, Benaz was no longer there and she thought that there was you know, no, nothing to worry about. Hmm. But clearly those, those she had seen the murderers because they knew she was there. It's really shocking, isn't it? Really shocking. I and mean... it's di- yeah, it is. And difficult for everybody concerned because hmm. she must have known that her life was at risk as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, she's in a no-win situation, isn't yeah. she? You either, sure. you, either, you either sort of, you know, keep quiet about it or you... Uh, or you spill the beans and end up suffering the same fate, don't you, really? Yeah. It it takes phenomenal courage to stand up against that sort of 
collusive violence. You know, mm. it's, it's difficult in any domestic violence situation, the power imbalance, you know, that makes it impossible um, to, to report people. It makes it very, very difficult to leave. You know, this nonsense about why didn't she leave? There are so many disincentives either to report or to leave. And we understand that. Mm. If you can think in, in honour-based violence situations, you're not talking about one suspect. Mm. You, you're talking about multiple suspects, not only your family that you live with and, and you love, but the wider community as well. Mm. And, it, and in Benazi's case, if you, if you take the people that planned the murder, the people that murdered her, that drove the body to Birmingham, that dug the holes, and the young men that absolutely flocked to the prison subsequently to offer their services to give false evidence to try and get these get these people off. There were over 50 people that were involved in Benaz's murder. God. So whilst we convicted eight people in eventually, um, mm. there were other people that were that were on the periphery. Mm. Uh, you know, the, and really with what I call mainstream domestic violence. You know, it, it's thought of by the community as a really, really bad thing. It's something that happens between, you know, behind closed doors that everybody else shuns and hates in the community. But mm. in honour-based violence situations, there's multiple, frequently multiple perpetrators. Mm. Loads of people are aware of it and approve of it. You know, and, and often they're done with extreme violence because they're done to send a message to other um, usually women in that community toe the line or else yeah. it's a horrible horrible thing yeah. to 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 um, to be a victim of yeah well when I was I was a DI in the public protection unit in, in Birmingham um, you know in, in the part of Birmingham uh, which has got very high um, representation of uh, Asian Muslim community um, uh, South Asian um yeah we had a lot a lot i dealt with it a lot um certainly any type of incident as you sort of described sort of missing teenage girls particularly obviously um we we would uh yeah take action very very quickly so yeah what what years would that have been when when so you were dealing? probably not that long before uh, sh shortly after the sun turn thinking probably about 2007 eight nine when i was doing that job um so yeah i was working in east birmingham which is um you know um very uh, large Asian population, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was very tricky. Very tricky because the families just, you know, people just didn't want to talk to you. They really didn't mm -hmm. want to talk to you. So you had to make a working assumption that, um, you know, the girls themselves very often would would not want to talk to you because they, you know, were had this sort of they were terror. You could see they were terrified. Yeah. Um, but no one would very rarely would, would would tell you really what was going on. Um, you know, they might confide in a particular teacher at school, maybe, uh, who 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 was who they trusted. Um, um, but it was very difficult, very difficult to get evidence that would you know support a prosecution very often. And all we all we would could do very often would be to try and safeguard them as much as we could. Mm -hmm. um you know facilitate any 
if they if they were you know old enough to uh, uh, you know some would maybe be happy to go into foster carers um but w- one girl um ended up running off with her boyfriend to um bangladesh actually um and then we had a hell of a job hell of a job trying to um track her down um through the british embassy in in uh oh god i'm testing my geography now um the capital of bangladesh anyway dakar is it um yeah we ended up having to uh to sort of do all sorts of inquiries via the british embassy in bangladesh but we couldn't involve the local law enforcement agency mm-hmm. agencies because obviously they would they would take the side of the male aggrieved parties and probably end up uh facilitating the murders yeah. of the girls so Really, really, really difficult. difficult to really deal with. Difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly when you're talking about, you know, uh, cross-border uh, jurisdictions, uh, you know, foreign jurisdictions. Very, very difficult. But anyway, listen, um, I'm conscious of the fact that it's a Friday evening. You've probably got... Um, I've run out of gin. Apology <laughs> that needs toughing up. Listen, um, that was amazing. That was f- fascinating, terrifying... Um, and you know, I really, really take my hats off to Caroline. I mean, you've you got the Queen's Police Medal for that, didn't you? QPM for for the investigation and also for the sort of work that I did subsequently to try and provide training to other police forces to make sure that nobody else fell into that same trap that the Met had. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and to try to make sure, you know, to try to minimise the chance that that would happen again. Hmm. And then just this week, uh, you know, I was reading of that awful case where the mother and daughter, I think it was in Manchester, were were murdered. Um, and again, looks like chances were missed there. You know, police said they'd hmm. come around the next day or whatever. And yeah, orders have been taken out that yeah he, he'd breached and it, yeah. It's just heart. It's heartbreaking. We're so much better at it than we were. There's loads and loads of serving officers who listen to this podcast, and and lots of I get lots of lovely emails and messages from people who are still doing their training or just about to start a training or maybe quite young in service. And I suppose what I'd say to them would be: if you're working in a part of the country where there is a large, and this is not a racist, this is not a racist comment. This is just this is just statement of fact. If you're working in part of the country where there are large uh, groups from those communities where honour-based violence is an issue um, and a young teenage girl comes to you or you find out through a third party that she's in fear for that, take it very, very, very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Believe, Believe them and take that risk really, really seriously and think wide. Um, because that threat could come from different members of the family or community, mm-hmm. not not just from the one person who, who's threatened yeah. um, that that young person. Yeah. Uh, I'm really, you know, I really encourage people to to read up on honour based violence because it's a very nuanced area, mm. um, and, and learn about it because you yeah. you know you will. Uh, you might think you've never come across it, yeah. but if you don't know about it, you won't recognise yeah. that you have. Well, I, I, one of the closest uh, sort of to, to uh, I've never really disclosed this before, albeit I did, I did 
you know, raise it when at the time, obviously, but I haven't talked about this on the podcast. But when I was a DI in that role, I came under pressure from uh, a particular senior officer who came from an Asian background to to stop an investigation. Yeah, in, into, I've heard of similar things into yeah. such a thing, and I ended up basically saying, if if I'm going to record the fact that we've had this conversation and if you, carry on, if you carry on down this route of putting me under that sort of pressure this will be fed directly to professional standards yeah good um, good good for you you're not the first person i've heard say it either yeah yeah so um, so so the tentacles of these issues run very very deep but they do and, and families will use every trick in the book you know, if it, to try and find people who are missing, including making allegations like criminal allegations against those young women to use the police, you know, to weaponize the police, if, if you want to use it that way, yes. to try and do their work for them, to find them. Um, or, or even people in the uh, DHSS, you know, like yeah. trying to find their, their yeah. national insurance numbers, find where people are working. Yeah. You you use the expression tentacles. I think that's a yeah. you know it's a very very apt description. Yeah. yeah. And of course, some of those people do work for the police, and the, and you know we want our police uh, forces to be to diverse and to represent mm. the community. But we need to recognise that yeah. sometimes that can have implications in this kind of investigation. Yeah. Well, I end up I did end up having a conversation with professional standards about about that, and and uh, the, per, the person who had who had that conversation with me was left in no doubt whatsoever that he needed to back off. Mm, good. But uh, but good. I think you know. Anyway, listen. It's Friday evening. Um, <laughs> my wife must have think I've been abducted by aliens. But um, listen, Caroline, this is absolutely brilliant. Thanks, thanks a million mm -hmm. for coming on and talking about it. It was brilliant. And um, yeah, um, well done you. Well done you. And Yeah, uh, thank, you know, well, thank you for inviting me to, to come and chat with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, oh, um, bless you. No, it's you know, it, it's still the best job in the world. So it's a job like no other. It is, it and, is. Uh, and I, I still it miss about, it. <laughs> I, uh, I put a little 30-minute... Um, mini podcast I heard on this week where I had a bit of a head loss and, and had a bit of a dropping the F-bomb quite a few times about, <laughs> sure about, the, about the way that policing is being treated at the moment and the, some of the things that are going on and it just it really grieves me as I'm sure it grieves you as well you know uh, yeah I mean it, it's in a difficult it is in a difficult place at the moment but for, for all for all that I look back on my career and I joined, you know, when when it was very, very sexist mm. um, in the 80s. Mm. Um, I think, you know, some of the things that happened to me were without doubt criminal offences. Mm. So, some, some of the systems that were in place were definitely sexist, but not mm. misogynistic because it wasn't about hating women. Mm. Um, you know, I think that that word is banded around a little bit too much. Mm. But on the whole, you know, mm. I had a absolutely excellent time. Mm. And also, it wasn't too bad being the only woman, you know, young, I, I, you know, I quite enjoyed the male attention, the male gaze. And I know mm. that all the other women that I served with at that time, they, mm. they felt the same way. So, 
you, you know, you try yeah. and compare what it was like in the 1980s and the tolerance for that that kind of behaviour is very different yeah. To, yeah. to the things that people are calling misogyny yeah. nowadays, which, you know, some of which are, are, you know, quite mild compared to things that have gone mm. on in the past. Now, I'm not saying they're right, but they're, you know, it's just that I think the tolerance level is very different and yeah. i think somewhere there needs to be a balance between those yeah those things. i mean i'm not even going to give an opinion on that because i'm a bloke and i'll just get accused <laughs> of, of mansplaining one time mansplaining so. stuff yeah <laughs> you know but, but i think i think it's important to be fair and balanced when you're talking about yeah you know, talking about those those types of behaviors yeah uh, i mean i've seen it, some outrageous behavior from both yeah, sexes um, exactly exactly that but I do think it's important to root out those people who are wrongans for want of, for want of a yeah, better word. There's a big difference, um, isn't there? But not to cast everyone with the you know with the same description. Yeah, definitely. Listen, there's some brilliant that... people out there doing some really really excellent work, yes, and we and mustn't I, forget those people. And I and I and again, this is a message to those listening to this who who are young in service or maybe doing the training. You are all. You know, most of you, I hope, apart from those who've slipped through the net on the vetting thing, um, most of you are great, good people and you've joined for all the right reasons. And um, you must trust and hope that things get better, you know, and I, I think they will because because they have to, I think. Um, yeah. Well, those anyway, people that you're talking to will make it better. Of course, they will. Yeah, they will. They will make it better. They will make the job their own. And as long as there are decent people out there, doing their best, mm. giving their all to yeah. try and make the world better for other yeah. people, the job will never be fucked. Yeah, exactly. Tell the truth, that's what I say. Tell the yeah. truth. Tell it as it is. <laughs> exactly. Listen, thanks a million. You're and, very uh, welcome. I would love to catch up with you at some point. And, uh, yeah, I can always say to people, I say, oh, I'm going to buy you a beer, but I'm thinking... Yeah, wouldn't that be great? We've some, got a million some... stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got all these people. <laughs> Maybe we should sort of organise a massive Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast piss-up in London or somewhere and get everyone who's been on who can make it. You know, it would be great. It'd be right laughing. No. We'd never get a word in edgeways with McNeville. We just wouldn't. <laughs> starting fights and all sorts mostly with senior officers right yeah. listen thanks a million have a great weekend have oh, a, enjoy the rest of your evening and you it's take such care a pleasure of yourself to meet you. oh bless you and likewise likewise all right. cheers, cheers, cheers caroline bye 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 bye, bye. He was often in our street We used to smile and wave at him While walking on his beat But now we never see him It really makes us frown No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town oh. <laughs>